Okay. How's everybody doing? I'm so proud of you guys. I mean, I don't... I think I'm like... I can't speak. Um, Excuse me. Really. Okay. Um, How was Pac-Man? I just wanted to know. Was it... Did it live up to the hype? Oh, wow. Wow. Kill that one next time, huh? (laughs) Um, So, again, I'm Sid Druin, REF Minister, New Mexico State University. Uh, Are you enjoying the retreat this far? Gosh, this is so amazing. I mean, I'm just kind of floored here. Uh, I hope you guys are. Uh, It's a really wonderful opportunity, and I hope that you're getting some rest, but I hope you're also learning a lot, and... I think what Greg said earlier is really important, that you take some of the stuff and you move out into the world with it. Um, if you're having a mountaintop high or valley low, maybe move out of that space and into real life as you go back to school on Tuesday. So our theme is relationships, gospel, and relationships. Uh, what have we talked about thus far? Science. Relationships are a mess. We talked about science, Jesus, the fall, beautiful. Ah, oh, man, you guys are learning so fast. That's the best answer. What's what's bushy? Has a bushy tail? Lives in a tree? Jesus, right answer. It's always the right answer. Um, the fall, right? I think it's a nut. Okay, so we've talked about that. We talked about our relationships being a mess. We talked about we're made to relate. Um, we're actually moving into so we've done creation, Genesis one. The fall of relationships, Genesis 3. And then we're now starting to move into what redemption looks like. Um, so we're going to talk about repentance tonight, and then we're going to talk about forgiveness tomorrow morning. Okay. So why am I still talking about relationships? Relationships describe who we are and what we do. Relationships describe who we are and what we do. That's why we're still talking about them. And again, I really want to make sure that we understand that we're talking about relationships biblically. We're looking at passages of scripture, and we're going through those passages of scripture to understand what God says about relationships. Look, it's not, I'm not up here to talk about what I think about relationships. You're not here to hear what your mom thinks about relationships. You're not here to hear what your friend thinks about relationships. What does the Lord of everything say about relationships? Why and how we relate? That's why we're here. That's what we're looking at. And we're going to address what the Bible is all about. Again, really well, we need Christian advice. Sometimes misses the mark. There's this thing called the gospel, the central message of the Christian faith, the good news. I'm going to quote a lady this time, Paige Benton Brown. Uh, Anybody know who that is? Probably not. Cool name, Paige Benton Brown. She's Southern, obviously. Um, And she puts the good news wonderfully. She says, the gospel is not about how much I love God. The gospel is not about how much I love God. The gospel is about how much God loves me. In, through, and because of Jesus Christ. So it's not about how much I love God, it's about how much God loves me. That's what the gospel's about. So tonight we're moving out of the book of Genesis. Okay? Some of you can cheer, some of you can weep. It's okay. And we're, but we're not going to get to the New Testament yet. Okay? We're stopping the minor prophets in Jonah. We're still in the first part of the Bible. And before we dive into our study of Jonah chapter 1, verses 11 through 16, that last section of chapter 1 of Jonah... Um, I want to catch you up on the events that led to verse 11. So, this is the Sid Drew and Authorized Standard Version paraphrase of verses 1 through 10 of Jonah, chapter 1, okay? Is anyone familiar with the book of Jonah? Pretty familiar? Have you studied this before at all? Ish? It's a beautiful story. Um, Jonah is everybody in this room. 
including me, maybe especially me. So, uh, wonderful look at, wonderful look at. But let me tell you the story, okay? So God tells a Hebrew and Israelite prophet, Jonah, to go and tell the folks of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria uh, in the ancient Near East. To change their ways that, so that God and the Ninevites can have a friendship. That's what the book of Jonah is. That's the call in verse 1 of chapter 1 is. But Jonah refuses to pass this love letter on. Oh, by the way, if you're looking for Jonah, is that what everyone's doing right now? I can hear like the rain of the leaves. Jonah's after Obadiah, which is after Amos, which is after Hosea, I think. Dole, thank you, then Hosea. Got ahead of myself. And it's before Micah. Okay, so beautifully buried in the, in the Minor Prophets. Anyway, so this is a love letter that God wants Jonah to send to the Ninevites, to the Assyrians, saying, let's be friends, let's hang out. Let's love one another. But, you know, Jonah says, thanks but no thanks. Because this is a love letter to a people that skin their enemies alive and hang them on spears outside of their city. That's who the Assyrians were in the ancient Near East. They were crazy violent and, and terrifying. So Jonah basically says, hey God, I'm on it. And then he catches the first ticket he can to the opposite end of the world. He goes, instead of to the east, he goes all the way to the west. And he goes all the way to the west to a place called Tarshish, Spain. But God says, not so fast. And God sends a storm, and a ship captain, and then a casting of lots to help Jonah to look and say, maybe I don't have the right idea. Jonah realizes two things. A, he can't run from God. That was a bad idea. B, he needs to have an honest moment with himself. And we see that in the passage before, what we're looking at. Jonah has this honest moment of confession. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I serve the Lord God who controls the seas, who made the heavens and the earth. And this moment of confession freaks out his sailor audience. Why? Because they hate intimacy? No. Because the storm is still raging, and they're about to die. So, that's where we left off, or that's where we were going. The first ten verses of Jonah chapter 1. We'll look at verses 11 through 16. So, that was my wonderful paraphrase. Would you stand for the reading of scripture? If you haven't found Jonah yet, I'm sorry. Um, chapter 1, verses 11 through 16. Then they, the sailors, said to him, Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may grow quiet, that it may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Jonah said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I notice because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they said, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Friends, the heavens and earth will pass away before one letter, one letter of the word of God becomes void. Would you pray with me? Father, um, I'm so thankful to get to open this text and to look at the book of Jonah and to talk about repentance. Um, it's a hard message to hear, but a beautiful one. I pray that we could be radically honest right here and right now, that we could look at ourselves in a way that was searching, convicting, mostly and especially because, Lord, um, when we believe in Jesus, when we believe in Jesus, 
that honesty, that radical honesty is possible. Because it's not all up to us anymore. And I pray that that would be something that rings in our hearts as we listen to this word. That rings in our hearts as we look at repentance. And I pray that we just wouldn't stay where we are. I pray that we would change. I pray that um, you would move us. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. You be seated. So it was my senior year of college, and I was driving home for winter break. Okay? I went to school in North Carolina, and I lived in Ohio. So it was about a seven-hour drive. But before I get to the drive, you have to understand I was something of a fourth-quarter quarterback. A fourth-quarter quarterback in college. What does that mean? Um, I still am, by the way. It means that I procrastinated. It means that I like waited the last second to do everything. And I still kind of do, okay? Um, but I'm going to use the past tense because it hurts less. So, I used to do this. Um, <laughs> I waited for the last minute to do all of my work. And there was something about it. And I guess, uh, to extend this over, this analogy a little too far, I loved and lived for the two-minute drill. Okay? It was the end of finals. I had a paper to write. I had a, had a final to take. And it was like, that's when I started to turn on and said, okay, now I'm going to start working. With like, it's two o'clock in the morning and I have a final at nine. That was sort of how I rolled. That was how I motivated And the stress and the crisis of the situation just got me amped up and overwhelms me into a near panic that actually motivated me to do something. That's how I was in college. Don't do that, okay? It was fight or flight to pass astronomy. Um, It was the next morning or later the same morning. And so what I would do, uh, this nearness to failure kicked me into a higher gear. It was a shame, guilt, vicious studying mode that just kind of overtook me and I would just work as hard as I could. And that little, what that really looked like was late-night cram sessions. Double-fisting Mountain Dew. Okay. I know. Crazy. Watch out. Taking a two-hour nap. They called it eight hours of rest. And then moving and taking the exam. Why is that important? Because, as you can imagine, my drive home was much more tiring when you've done that for a whole week. Please don't try this at home. Okay? I'm not advocating this. It's stupid. I wish I didn't do it. Um... But anyway, the seven-hour drive home for the holidays was exhausting because I was a fourth-quarter quarterback. I was getting a little drowsy, but I had finished all my stuff, so I was feeling that success, that heady success. You know, it was sort of like the post-game Gatorade bath, if you will, okay? I felt it. I felt I succeeded. I got my papers done, my exams done. Um, and I was driving this route that I had driven hundreds, like not hundreds of times, several times um, from North Carolina to Ohio. And I said, okay, I can do this. I was tired, a bit, a bit distracted, but I was confident. I can make it. I remember I was listening to this awful book tape to stay awake. It was one of those books that went into nauseating details about a tree stump in an autumn field. Um, it didn't have the writing chops to back it up. It was miserable. I was dying. I was silently resenting this ridiculous tree stump in the middle of a, the middle of a, a field when an interstate sign flew by. I paused the CD player, you know, so early 2000s. Where was, where was I? Um, was that the sign really right, I thought? Was that the right sign? It, I thought it said six, I-64 East, but I was supposed to be going I-64 West. Uh, I narrowed my eyes in concentration, gripped the wheel, and looked for another sign. And then, sure enough, a few minutes later, I saw another sign whiz by. And this time it said, I-64 East again. So I had been going 70 miles per hour for an hour in the wrong direction. A route that I had taken many times. It's pathetic. But I have no sense of direction, so it's not surprising. 
So I, had this, I pulled off the highway into an exit. And I had this honest moment with myself where I was like, Sid, you've been going the wrong way for an hour. What are you doing? Um, how had I gone so long the wrong direction? And here's my question for you guys. What did I need to do to get home? What did I need to get home? What did I need to do to get home? Turn around. So was this honest moment, this confession of my mistake enough to get me home again? No, it wasn't. I had to turn around the car and go in the other direction. That is the biblical picture of repentance. You're going the wrong direction, and you need to turn around and go the other direction. It's not just saying, I'm going the wrong direction. It's turning around and going the other direction. That's what repentance means in the Bible. It's not enough to confess we're wrong. We have to act on this honest information. And we have to turn on the cars of our lives and drive in the opposite direction from sin. We have to drive in the opposite direction of that path that leads us away from God and away from other people. And we see this truth clearly in our relationships with God and with other people. It's not enough to acknowledge that we're going in the wrong spiritual direction. It's not enough to say, hey, I'm hurting God and I'm hurting other people. We actually have to turn around and go in the right direction. We have to say, I need to love God and love other people. That's what repentance is. You see, again, we were made to relate. We long to be known and to, be, and to know, to love and to be loved. But sin, the selfish opposite of love, has wrecked our relationships and they're a mess. And here's the question that we're going to start to address today, tonight, and then tomorrow morning. How do we move forward? How do we move forward? How do we keep standing with each other in this mess? We need a gospel cure. We need repentance. Repentance, and this is my definition, is the motion that draws sinners together. Repentance is the motion that draws sinners like you and me together. In our passage tonight, Jonah chapter 1, verses 11 through 16, Jonah comes to a similar understanding about the nature of the spiritual life. He sees that God's storm doesn't stop when he confesses that he's fleeing from God. In verse 9, Jonah sees that he also needs to repent. That is to stop fleeing from God and stop fleeing in the opposite direction from Nineveh where he's supposed to go. And the passage prepares us for a God who uses our repentance to calm our relationship storms by his love. So in short, Jonah 1, verses 11 through 16 is about this. It's about practicing repentance within your relationships and into the arms of Christ. So practice repentance within your relationships and into the arms of Christ. Why? Because Jesus knows your sin. And by grace, he loves us enough to pay for it. That's why we repent, because Jesus knows your sin and knows my sin, and by grace loves us enough to pay for it. Um, not surprisingly, if you've been here for the last couple days, I'm going to divide this passage into three parts. Um, so, we're doing three portions that explain what repentance is, what repentance is, and how it works. First, verses 11 through 12, we see repentance and what it looks like. Verse 13, God shows us why we resist repentance. Then, verses 14 through 16, God shows us how repentance isn't enough. How we need the solution of sacrifice. So verses 11 through 12, what repentance looks like. Verse 13, why we resist repentance. Verses 14 through 16, how sacrifice is the only solution. Let's start with verses 11 and 12. 
kind of jumped into the middle of a stream in Jonah. Before we kind of get into what repentance is in Jonah, uh, in this particular section of Jonah, I want to talk about what Jonah 1 is doing. It's a really beautiful illustration of the Christian life. Okay. I mean, again, Jonah is like the everyman in so many ways. Verses 1 through 3 of Jonah chapter 1 show us what sin looks like. And all it says is sin is running away from God. It's running away from what God in particular wants us to do, where he calls us to go. Then we see in verses 4 through 10, especially in verse 9, what confession looks like. Confession is an honest moment of who we really are and who God really is, and that, and that giant yawning gap between the two. And finally, in verses 11 through 16, especially in verses 11 and 12, we see what repentance looks like. The book of Jonah is giving us a picture definition of these terms. It's beautiful. I love the book of Jonah. I just taught on it this past fall. But here's what I'm saying. What does repentance look like in Jonah's story and our story? Let's look at Jonah's story briefly. As I said before, the storm is still raging in the sea. Even after Jonah has admitted that he's running from the God who controls the very seas that he flees on. Even after that moment of honesty, verse 11 tells us the sea grew more and more tempestuous. You've got to love the English Standard Version for not saying stormy. It's like t- tempestuous over and over and over again. Anyway, okay, so grew, grew, the sea grows more and more stormy. And you could, you could imagine the scene over the gale force winds and, that, and those ship-shaking thunderclaps. The sailors ask Jonah in like a loud voice, how in the world do we stop this? How in the world, why is this happening to us? And in verse 12, Jonah replies, he says this, Here's how you stop the storm. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And the sea will quiet down for you. This is Jonah's solution. This is Jonah's repentance. Jonah knows that God will only stop, will only stop storming when he stops fleeing. And he must leave the ship immediately because this is the only way to stop going the wrong direction. Do you get this? You can think about my story with the car briefly, okay? So he's on a ship going west to Tarshish. It's not enough for him to say, yeah, I'm wrong, my bad, because the ship is still going west. Unless he jumps off the ship, he will not cease to go west and go, instead go east towards Nineveh. Does that make sense? He needs to go east towards Nineveh, and the only way to get there is to stop going west. And that's why it's repentance. He's got to go the other direction. And we need to do the same thing. When we run from God's calling of love... We need to turn around and go the other direction. That's what repentance is. We catch ourselves in a conversation. Think about it. When we're sort of doing this thing, this is a crippling question, by the way. Are you ministering or manipulating people? This, that almost destroyed my whole semester. Someone asked me that, and I almost died. I was in the fetal position. I'm always in the fetal position. But miserable. So here's the question. When you're with people, are you manipulating them? Are you manipulating them to see your gifts and to praise you? Or are you ministering to them by shining, polishing the dignity of who they are? And here's the thing. When we're manipulating people, we need to not just pretend it's not happening. It's more than that. It's even more than just being aware of the manipulation and keep talking. We need to turn from taking advantage of people and turn towards helping your friend, your sister, or your classmate. Does that make sense? That's what repentance looks like. Stop. It's not just recognizing you're manipulating. It's not, just, it's not denying you're manipulating. It's moving from manipulation to help. 
Sometimes this looks like confessing your manipulation on the spot. Look, I'm sorry. I'm using this conversation for my glory. Often it looks like abandoning the topic of conversation immediately. Throwing yourself off that boat, so to speak. I love the way that commentator Matthew Henry puts the situation. Matthew Henry is this old, brilliant guy. He says this, We must drown that which will otherwise drown us. We must drown what, that which otherwise will drown us. And what he means is this, Sin becomes an easy habit because repentance looks like and feels like death. Sin becomes an easy habit because repentance looks and feels like death. Loving other people well feels like casting yourself off of a boat and into stormy, uncertain waters. That's why it's so hard. That's why very few of us do it well. But, look, we're going to have a lot of these moments, but can we have an honest moment here for a second? I just, you know, right here, right now, in the middle of these lights and in this podium, you know, you're thinking to yourself, maybe you're thinking to yourself right now, really? What's the big deal? Okay, so you're not perfect. Who is? Who doesn't like to talk about themselves in a conversation? Who isn't a bad listener? I mean, after all, we're all pretty good people doing our best, Sid. Get out of the gloomy gust situation there. Get your head out of, get your head up head up and look and see the positive. And this is exactly what the sailors in verse 13 are thinking. They're resisting repentance. Look, for us and the sailors, Jonah's solution seems awfully drastic, doesn't it? Right? For mostly good motives, we think, look, there's got to be another way than you throwing yourself to certain death. There's got to be a different way. So instead of calling out sin, we row hard to make potentially honest moments less awkward, less vulnerable, and less costly. We row to safety. We row to safety. When someone apologizes or we're hurt, we say things like, hey, look, don't worry about calling me fat. It's okay. Or, don't worry about not, not inviting me to hang out again. It's fine. But really, it's actually a big deal. It's not okay, and it's certainly not fine. We just hate to look that vulnerable, don't we? That's just how we are. So, when it comes to relationships, I often think of a movie. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen this. Monty Python and the Search for the Holy Grail. Okay? Finally, I hit a, one of my illustrations finally hits the audience. Yes! Okay. Um, I think that's with the Black Knight. Okay? So, King Arthur, I don't know if you remember this. Okay, so he's got, he's got his guy named Patsy, and Patsy's the coconuts, and he kind of clicks the coconuts. He's fake riding a horse the whole time. Beautiful. Um, I don't understand what that's about, but... I don't know. Um, so King Arthur comes up to this bridge, and there's a black knight there. And the black knight says, none shall pass. Right? And I think in our relationships, we're a lot like that black knight. We act big and brave, protecting our hearts and shouting, none shall pass. But there's this tussle that happens, right? So King Arthur says, no, I've got to pass. And the black knight says, no, and he says, yes. And they start to fight. And I think when we start to think about this, when people start to engage us in a real way, when we start to get into the throes of getting to know each other, we do inevitably fight. And then eventually something happens where some of, one of us verbally gets our leg cut off. Okay? Our emotional leg is cut off. There we are, hopping around without an emotional leg. And we're saying, oh, it's just a scratch, just a flesh wound. 
Okay? Don't worry about me. It's fine. Meanwhile, blood is spewing everywhere. All over us, all over the other person, all over the camera. And let's face it, we're wounding as much as we're wounded, as much as we don't want to admit either. So here's a really hard question for us that I'd like us to think about. When was the last time we said to a friend, look, I've done you wrong by blank. It was messed up, and I'll try never to do that again. That's what repentance looks like. I've done you wrong by blank. It was messed up, and I'll never do that again. And then making every effort by the Holy Spirit to not tell her secret, to not steal his girl, to not put her down in front of everybody, to not ignore her. That's what repentance in our relationships looks like. And I, I'm going to say this again, again, an old, honest, ridiculous moment. Most of us are afraid to admit it, but many of our relationships just kind of stink. Okay? Sins, often very small and subtle sins, are getting in the way of our relationships. And they're making it hard to truly be loved and to love. Whether it's family, friends, teammates, or classmates, in many of our relationships, we just don't feel known or know other people with any depth or with any intentionality. Look, I'm not saying that all of our relationships are bad. I think some people could probably maybe have thought that. Like, Sid just thinks that no one has any good relationships. I'm not saying that, okay? I'm not saying that you can't have good conversations. I'm not saying that you don't have good friends. But I'm just saying that most of the time... And I'm also just, by the way, not saying that this is one person's fault. It's not all your fault or all their fault. I'm just saying that a lot of our relationships lack depth. Because they lack repentance. They lack honesty. That things really aren't fine. This is what I love about the gospel. It, fears, it, it frees us up to say this. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to be okay. Because there's hope. There's repentance and there's Jesus Christ to draw us back together again, to help us to relate with the depth and the intimacy that we really want. Let me give you a positive example of how repentance actually heals relationships. So I've given you how we've got emotional legs cut off and we're spewing blood everywhere. And I've told you about how we struggle with relationships in general. But let me give you a positive example of how repentance heals our relationships. So I had a college roommate named Ryan, and we lived in an apartment. We each had separate bathrooms in a common room, or separate bedrooms in a common room. And uh, Ryan and I became good friends through repentance. It kind of happened by accident at first. You see, Ryan had this huge collection of shoes. Like, large, like, absurdly large amount of shoes. Okay? But he also, like, combined that with the fact that he was a neat freak. And he didn't like to have his shoes in his room. So he would line rows deep the hallway in front of my bedroom with his shoes. And so going in and out of my door was like an exercise in tripping or hopping awkwardly. Okay? You can imagine the situation. Sneakers, high tops, loafers, slippers. I mean, if it was a shoe and it was viable, Ryan had it. I don't know why. Okay? It got so bad, though, that I couldn't even, even enter or leave my room without that frustration. So finally, one day, I got fed up. And I just went up to Ryan, and I sort of said, I'm going to start a relationship, and I said, look, you, your shoes are a problem. Your shoes are a problem. Do you know what he did? We had this confrontation. At first, he was a little bit angry, a little bit frustrated. But then, very typical Ryan, he took a step back, and he started grinning. And he threw his head back and he just laughed for like five minutes. And you know what he said? You're right. My shoes are a problem. It's ridiculous. I'm sorry. It was almost like he was waiting for me to call him out. 
was almost like he was dying for me. To, to, he was doing this just so he could actually honestly relate. And, you know, it was one of those beautiful moments where um, he was finally glad that we could be honest together. And he taught me how to repent like no one else has ever taught me. Where and how to do that. He spoke into my life. He said, Sid, you know, sometimes you come across as a jerk. You're arrogant. You're full of yourself. And you know what? He was and is right. He just is. And you know what he'd say after that? With a gro- his goofy grin again and his, and his laugh, his cackle. He would say, but I love you, man. I love you anyway. And you know what? I appreciate you. And you know he meant that. It was a beautiful relationship. And it was set up by repentance. But let's return to Jonah's story for a final time. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. The sailors overcome their disbelief in a drastic cure and cast Jonah overboard. What happens? Why do they do that? Why do they change their mind and decide to throw Jonah overboard? What is it about the situation that makes them do that? I think verse 13 makes it clear the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. This is what they realize. There's no other solution. They can't do anything else. Nothing else will work. They realize that there are problems that we can't row our way out of. And sacrifice is the only solution that will work. Listen, let's not miss the point. If we're honest, we'll realize that we're not good people and everything isn't fine. Okay? Me included. Me first, perhaps. No amount of good works, positive thoughts, distraction will work. You cannot row yourself out of your situation. Your self-effort will not lead to anything but pride and then despair, feel like a saint and then a sinner, depending on your day, your mood, and a million other factors. The fact is that sin is raging against the relationships like the storm was raging against the boat in Jonah. There's a reason why we're hurting others and being hurt more than we are willing to admit. And it's not just a lack of discipline. It's sin. And while it's a good start, repentance is not enough. We need more than that. Repentance is a promise to change that needs something else. It needs a fuel to power it, to make us really and truly change for good. What's needed is a sacrifice, a sacrifice that's bigger than anything that we or Jonah can bring to the table. We need, we need Jesus to stop, to stop. We need Jesus to calm the storm caused by sin. Do we get that? I hope so. You see, Jesus. It's what's called a propitiation. Okay? This is a really fancy term in Romans chapter 3 that Paul uses. A propitiation basically means this, that Jesus calms the storm of anger and hurt between us and God, between us and other people, between us and ourselves, between us and the whole world. That's what propitiation means. That's the promise of Jesus. Jesus is the way we are healed. Hurts are healed and wrongs are righted. Jesus has hurt and wronged no one and therefore dies as a sin offering for his people to to right the wrongs and to heal the hurts. Jesus has endured a storm caused by sin. He does it in a way that no one else can so that we can have a peace and a calmness that no one else can possibly get. Let me get real, real practical here because that's very abstract. Practically speaking, we will never begin to own the ways that we hurt and anger other people until we own the fact that Jesus Christ has taken all of the ways that we hurt and anger other people and nailed them to a cross 2,000 years ago. You just won't. I won't. On that cross, Jesus says, it is finished. 
And he means that about our hurts and our angers are done. He has paid for all of them. They're dead. Until we can say Jesus died for that, about our silent treatment, about our bitterness, about our yelling, about our insults, we will never be able to really repent. We'll never be able to die to those things, those hurts and those angers in our lives. And here's what I mean. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to be okay. And here's why. Because Jesus makes you okay with God. That's why it's okay not to be okay. And this is how we own this idea of not being okay by daily repenting. Saying, I'm a mess. Let me apologize. Let me change. I need to get better. And I need Jesus Christ, once and for all, his idea of making us good and true and beautiful to God to empower that. And here's the beautiful thing about Jesus and the gospel. We are okay even when we rarely or poorly repent. Okay, finally, Jonah 14 through 16 leaves us with a picture of how if we believe in Jesus Christ, we get spiritual and physical life and a sacrificial death. Look, the sailors get both kinds of life. So Jonah calms the storm so they physically live. But also, at the same time, you see in verse 16 that they start believing the Lord God. And they get spiritual life. They get to live forever. And I want you to see this. The the sailor's belief is not because of Jonah's passion. I do think that repentance is attractive, but I don't think that's why the sailors believe. The sailors were converted because God calmed the raging sea. And this is an act that they were able to glimpse into the Godhead himself. The very character of God was at work here. God is powerful enough to order chaos, just enough to ignore sin, compassionate enough to save lives by dying for us. They saw, and what we see right now, that God is a community of sacrificial love. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's okay not to be okay. And repentance is owning that every moment. Would you pray with me? Father, it's hot. I'm tired. And we're all tired. I pray, Father, that um, we would get this. We would know this. That repentance would be a part of our lives and it would change our relationships. And that we would be radically honest in a way that only your gospel frees us to be. We're a mess. But we're a mess that you love unconditionally. We ask, Father, that um, you'd be patient with us, that you'd help us stick what you want to stick. And I pray, Father, that it would change the way that we live. In your son's name. Amen. Amen.